0: The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 34. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, and they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated, and good morning. Welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series to the book of Acts, a series we've been calling The World Turned Upside Down. Everywhere that the gospel message goes, it turns things upside down. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16 and how the gospel turns things upside down for three different people. And uh, this will be a little bit different than our normal sermons, not radically different, but a little bit, because we're covering a lot of ground in one sermon. Uh, All three of these people could probably be one sermon in and of themselves, but I'm keeping it all together. And I don't really need illustrations for this sermon because the stories of the people are illustrations. And so we're going to take a look at how the gospel turns things upside down for three totally different people. They're different from one another. We have a woman, a girl, and a man, an Asian, a Greek, a Roman, upper class, lower class, middle class, spiritually open, demonically possessed, and indifferent. They're radically different from one another. And they're also different from some of the earliest Jewish Christians at that time. In fact, they actually represent three groups of people who are often held in contempt by Jews. Women, slaves, and Gentiles. And so there's all sorts of barriers being broken down right here in this passage. From gender to ethnicity to social barriers, social standing three radically different people, all having their lives transformed by Jesus and the gospel, which shows us that the gospel really is for everyone. It's not for some, but not for others. It is for you and for everyone. And so we're going to look more closely at Acts chapter 16 and these three lives changed by the gospel. And as we do so, we'll have three points, the three different people, a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a jailer. And so let's begin with our first point, a businesswoman. Our passage begins with Paul and Silas and Luke. Yes, Luke, who wrote Acts, is now involved, which we know because in Acts chapter 16, he starts saying, we and us, as he's giving his uh, narration. And so Paul and Silas and Luke are in Philippi, a major city in first century Macedonia, and a Roman colony, And verse 13 says that on a Sabbath day, they go outside the city gate along the river to a place of prayer. And there were some women who had gathered there. And so they sit down with the women and speak with them. Not at them, but with them. And uh, one of the women was uh, named Lydia. And she's our businesswoman, Lydia. Verse 14 says that she is from the city of Thyatira. She is a seller of purple goods, and she is a worshiper of God. And so here's the picture of Lydia that we're getting. She isn't from Philippi. She's from Thyatira, which is in Asia Minor. But she lives in Philippi now, and in Philippi, she is a seller of purple goods. She's a businesswoman. You could think of her as an entrepreneur. You know, she knew that Philippi was where she wanted to be to run her business. And so she moved from her home in Thyatira to Philippi and started up this purple goods business. And the thing about purple goods or purple clothing is that it's expensive. It was considered very beautiful, very fashionable. It was a status symbol. Only wealthy people could afford to buy purple goods and so wearing purple or having purple was a sign of wealth. It was also a sign of beauty. It made you look good. It made you look beautiful to those who saw you. You know, oh look at him, look at her. I wish I could look like that with purple. And because she worked in this business that sold purple goods to wealthy people, Lydia herself was likely pretty wealthy herself. And, uh, you know, she was well acquainted with fashion and beauty of the age. She knew what looked good. She knew what people thought was beautiful. We also know from verse 15 that she owned her own house. And it's big enough that she can have guests stay there. It seems like she's probably a single woman, possibly widowed. But uh, she's single and she has no husband. She's the head of her own household. She owns this house. And so she's an independent woman. She's a successful businesswoman. She's wealthy. She's upper class. She's the head of her household. She's fashionable. She has made a lot happen for herself. She's gotten herself into a pretty good position. And that's not all. Verse 14 describes her as a worshiper of God. Now, that's a, a technical term. Sometimes it's translated A God-fearer, it doesn't mean that she was a Christian. Uh, This term, a worshiper of God or a God-fearer, basically describes a Gentile who's left behind their paganism to seek after and worship the God of Israel, Yahweh. So usually that means going from polytheistic to monotheistic, uh, only the God of Israel. Typically means attending synagogue and as we see in our passage, she was with other women gathering to pray to this God, and so she's spiritually open. You know, Lydia is religious; she's pious. On, you know, on top of her success in business, she's also spiritually interested in taking it upon herself to seek after God. I mean, she's pretty impressive, right? She's on the right track. She basically has everything she needs, right? Not exactly. Something is still missing for Lydia. You know, as a God worshiper, as a God fearer, Lydia was probably stuck in kind of an uncomfortable middle ground. You know, when she was polytheistic, when she was a pagan, uh, she would have been influenced by the popular philosophies of the time, Epicureanism or Stoicism. She probably felt like there was no hope in the future because of these philosophies or no real meaningful love because of those philosophies. And so she left that religious life behind and looked for something more and found Old Testament monotheism, which had a God of future hope, a God of love, but it also came with all sorts of burdens, like we talked about. Last week, you know, the laws and customs of Moses, foods to avoid, clothing to avoid. And, you know, often Gentiles weren't very readily incorporated into Jewish communities, even if they sought after the same God. You know, they were still sort of outsiders. And so that's where the gospel meets Lydia You know, she knows she's looking for something more than just business success and wealth and affluence. But the best that she's managed to find is, you know, Old Testament Judaism. And she probably feels like she's kind of one foot in, one foot out in God's people, which is also probably as close as many Jews care for her to come. But then Paul and Silas and Luke come along, and they just start talking with this small group of women. It's only women. No husbands, no fathers, just women. And they sit down with them and speak with them. It's like a community group or a small group Bible study type of atmosphere. You know, no charismatic speeches, no huge crowds, no stage. Just a a small group of people praying and talking together. And that's how God works in Lydia's heart. Verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is another way of saying that she came to saving faith. Through the small group of women sitting down and talking with Paul, Silas, and Luke, the Lord opened her heart, created the faith within her to pay attention to Paul's message, the gospel. And that you know that term "pay attention" is much stronger than you might initially hear it as. You know, we might think of a parent scolding their child during church, "pay attention." Uh, but this is stronger than that. It's more like be captivated by this, to be drawn into this, to behold this. You know, the Lord opened her heart to be captivated, and she's so captivated by the gospel that she believes and she is baptized. She and her household. This successful businesswoman, upper class, wealthy, who rubbed shoulders with cultural elite, sold purple clothing, knew what people pay attention to, what captivates and draws them in, she found herself paying attention to and being captivated by being drawn into something even better, something even more worthy, something glorious, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is more valuable Than purple goods. He's more beautiful than purple clothing. And so Lydia is captivated by him. And so she urges Paul and Silas and Luke to come stay at her house. And they do. But it seems like there was almost some sort of debate first. You know, she didn't simply invite them or offer, it says she urged them. And the way that Luke says that, uh, they did, says what they did in uh, verse 15 is uh, she urged them and then she. Prevailed upon us. Like they didn't initially want to stay with her house, but she debated with them and ultimately convinced them that they must stay with her, and they agreed. And it's quite possible that the reason she wanted them to stay with her so badly was so that she could show them her house and offer it as a ministry center for this new religious movement. Uh, This wasn't in our sermon text, but if you were to go to verse 40 of chapter 16, Uh, It says that before the men depart Philippi, they stop at Lydia's house and encourage all the believers there. And so apparently her house becomes a sort of gathering place for Christians in Philippi. That's the reason, reason she probably insisted that they come was so she could offer it to them. She immediately wanted to steward her business success and independence for the kingdom, for the gospel, for continuing to do ministry in Philippi. That's, you know, Lydia's story. What can we take away then from Lydia's story of life change? Well, first, I would say notice the importance and dignity of women in this passage. You know, Paul, Silas, and Luke don't say to the group of women, you know, where are your husbands? Where are your fathers? Go get them so we can tell them about Jesus, and they can teach you. They don't say, we can't be seen with you. It would be taken the wrong way. Instead, they just sit and speak directly with this small group of women, just like Jesus did with many women. And immediately, one of those women, Lydia, begins contributing significantly to the gospel ministry. And so notice the importance and dignity of women shown through Lydia's story. Second, we all know people who seem like they don't need anything they have it all together they're successful they dress well they practice healthy lifestyle habits they're spiritual in some way they don't seem like they need anything or you know maybe we even see ourselves sometimes that way a little bit you know i have pretty much everything i need i've made a lot happen for myself it's probably how lydia came across to most people but even she still lacked something and the people we think have everything without christ they actually have nothing But maybe even more encouraging, if Lydia's attention could be redirected to Jesus and she could be captivated by something more valuable than her wealth, more beautiful than her purple goods, if even Lydia could be drawn into Jesus, then anyone you know who they think they already have it all can also be captivated by Jesus. They can come to see that Jesus is who they need over and above everything else. And so we should pray that the Lord would open hearts to be captivated by Jesus. We should pray that he would open our hearts to be captivated more and more by Jesus. Third, notice the importance of opening up your home for the work of ministry, if you can. You know, Lydia converts, she's baptized, her whole household is baptized, and then she debates with them until they agree to stay at her house, which eventually turns into a center for gospel ministry in Philippi. It's where Christians gather And there's something meaningful about opening up your home to other believers. It's a huge way that we share our lives with one another. You know, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.8, we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. We share our lives with each other when we're in one another's homes. And what's more, You know, as a church that rents space to meet because we don't own our own building, when one of you lets us come over for something church-related, that's literally saving us hundreds of dollars. Don't deduct that from your tithing, but think about that. Something you may have not even given a second thought, hosting people, saves us hundreds of dollars, just like that. And so Lydia shows us the importance of opening up our homes to one another, opening up our homes for the work of ministry. So that's Lydia, the businesswoman, captivated by the beauty of Jesus. Let's move on now to our second person, and our second point, a slave girl. So after staying at Lydia's, um, at Lydia's house, Paul, Silas, and Luke encounter a slave girl. Verse 16 says that she was a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And so this was a girl, probably middle school aged or so, and she was a slave. She had owners, slave masters. She was not free. She was not independent. Uh, she didn't, but she didn't just have human owners. She also had a spiritual owner. She had a spirit of divination. Now, what does that mean? A spirit of divination. Well, commentators explain that the the Greek phrase translated as spirit of divination implies two things about this girl. First, she would be visibly and audibly perceived as deranged. She likely spoke in a wide variety of different voices, voices that should not come from a middle school-aged girl, almost as if it were someone else who were speaking through her. And she was tormented. She was demon-possessed. That's the first implication. And the second is that she could see the future. She could do fortune tellings. And she must have truly been able to do fortune tellings to see the future because her owners, her slave masters, made a lot of money off of her. That's what the passage says. She brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And if you run a business where you claim to predict the future and are consistently wrong, you're not going to make a lot of money. And so it's pretty certain that she really could see the future. She really did know things that she should not have known by normal means. And so she's demon-possessed. She can see the future. She's incredibly loud and frightening, which actually leads to her encounter with Jesus. She starts following around Paul for several days, crying out, which is probably too polite. She's, she's probably shrieking, screaming, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And it's interesting because, you know, most of the people around them probably didn't know who Paul and Silas and Luke were exactly, but she did. She knew exactly who they were because she knew things even before she had been told. And so she's following them around and repeating and shouting this phrase, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation which is 100% true but she's probably conflicted about it. It's pretty unlikely that this is, you know, wholehearted celebration of the fact because she can't do anything wholeheartedly. She's possessed. And clearly something in her is drawn to Paul and his message and that's why she continues to follow him around, but the spirit inside of her is certainly not announcing it gladly. It's like James 2:19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This spirit, this demon inside of this girl is shuddering. And this is kind of an uncomfortable truth, but demons, evil spirits, Satan, they're smarter than you. They know more than you. They know spiritual truths that we often ignore or are blind to. But the thing with demons is, They know truths about God, but hate the truth and hate God and hate you. They know that Jesus is the most high God and the only way to salvation for you, and they absolutely hate it. And so what happens with this girl? Well, eventually, Paul is so sick and tired of her crying out and following them around that he snaps. And in his exasperation, he casts the demon out of her. That's what verse 18 says. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Paul got greatly annoyed and then cast out the demon. Not a great look for Paul, to be honest, right? You know, we would much rather read, and Paul, filled with compassion, gently laid his hand on her. But nope. Paul gets annoyed and snaps, but it works. The demon leaves her, which just emphasizes that it's really Jesus who casts out the demon. It's not by Paul's name that the demon is cast out. It's by Jesus's name, and Jesus is willing to work even through imperfect and annoyed servants like Paul, which is good news for people like you and me who are imperfect and get annoyed sometimes too. It's also good news because it shows that Jesus is more powerful than evil spirits. Evil spirits have power, but Jesus has more. He's more powerful than evil spirits. He's also more powerful than our flaws. He's more powerful than evil spirits, and he's more powerful than his flawed servants. And that's good news for us. It's also worth reflecting that Paul's annoyance actually makes this passage and the whole book of Acts a lot more believable. I mean, Paul is with Luke when this happens, and so later when Luke is writing Acts, I mean if it were me, I would have been like, "Hey, Luke, we go way back, right? Would you mind not mentioning that I lost my cool with the slave girl? That would, you know, not be good for my brand." But it's in there because it's what really happened. Luke didn't alter the account. He kept an account that made Paul look not that great in the moment because Acts is true. The whole Bible is true. Paul's annoyance makes this story more believable. Now, when the girl's owners realize that the spirit of divination has left the girl, they are not happy. They're quite mad, actually. They've just lost a major source of income. They don't care about the girl at all. They care about their lost profits, which is actually a common response when people have an encounter with Jesus. You know, pimps don't want their prostitutes to come to Jesus and switch professions. Managers don't want their employees to come to Jesus and refuse to perpetuate unethical business practices that make the company money. Parents, maybe even Christian parents, like some of you, don't want their children to be transformed by Jesus and drop out of college to go to the mission field, right? The change that Jesus brings into the lives of those who trust in him will often disrupt and anger the patterns of this world. And so these slave owners are very unhappy with Paul and Silas and Luke, and they drag them in front of rulers, falsely accuse them of disturbing the city, lead a crowd to tear their clothes off and beat them with rods, and then they have them thrown in jail. Nobody seemed to care that much about this girl before, but suddenly she's very important to everyone now that Jesus has transformed her. So that's the story of the slave girl. What can we take away from this second story of life change, the changed life of the slave girl? Well, I think we have to talk about evil spirits for a moment. She was demon-possessed. That is a real thing. Now, if you belong to Christ... It's not something that you have to worry about happening to you. But demon possession is real. Evil spirits are real. Satan is real. How often do you think about these realities? Now, as a word of caution, C.S. Lewis says this in his uh, preface to the book, The Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And so it's an error to be too interested in evil spirits, but it's also an error to disbelieve in their existence or ignore it completely. So do you believe in their existence? Or right now, are you thinking, man, I almost never think about demons or evil spirits Or Satan. I hardly ever think that they could be responsible for what I witness in this world. If that's where you're at today, that's okay. Uh, But you're probably a bit too influenced by our secular and materialist society in which everything has a natural explanation and therefore a natural cure. Your thinking might be a little bit more worldly than Christian if you never think of the spiritual realm or evil spirits. You know, if we came across someone like this slave girl today, we probably wouldn't wait to see if her predictions came true. We would just ignore them, and we would be incredibly tempted to say that the reason she talked in all these weird voices and was internally tormented must be explainable, you know, medically or psychologically or socially, whatever. It must be explainable naturally. She has a chemical imbalance or... Uh, She must have been rejected by her family. She must have an attachment disorder. Maybe she's economically poor, and that's what's led to this circumstance. There must be some natural explanation for why she's tormented like this. And so let's get her some medicine. Let's get her some therapy, some education, some money. And look, those explanations can be true. And medicine and therapy are good things, You know, my mom is a cancer survivor because of life-saving chemotherapy, and while she was going through chemotherapy, she took anti-anxiety medicine to cope with the stress of it. I'm not against those things. They're good. They can help. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, As an aside, when she was prescribed the anti-anxiety medicine, she asked the doctor, how will I know if it's working? And the doctor responded, your husband will know before you do. (laughs) Those things can help. Don't hear what I'm not saying but what I want you to take away is that because evil spirits are real, there are some things that medicine and therapy cannot heal. I mean, let's be honest. Medicine actually does not ultimately heal. The death rate is still going strong at 100%. No patient ultimately survives because something more than natural is wrong with the world. Something supernatural is wrong with the world. Which is why everyone, actually, in some sense, needs a sort of exorcism. I'm not saying we were all demon-possessed before we knew Christ, but your salvation was supernatural. Something was wrong spiritually inside of you that Jesus had to make right. The Lord opened your heart. You didn't open your heart. The Lord opened your heart. Just like the Lord opened Lydia's heart. You see, Lydia had her heart opened. Lydia and the slave girl While both coming from vastly different circumstances, they actually both needed the same thing. At their core, they needed the Lord to open their hearts, to set them free from spiritual captivity, to work supernaturally inside of them. They both needed Jesus. The business owner and the slave who had owners couldn't be more different, but they actually needed exactly the same thing for Jesus to open their hearts and free them from their spiritual captivity. If you're a Christian, that was your biggest need too. If you're not, that's still your biggest need, for Jesus to set you free from spiritual captivity and bring you into spiritual life. And so the slave girl was rescued by Jesus, who is more powerful than evil spirits. After Paul and Silas had this moment, seeing the slave girl set free from the spirit that enslaved her, they themselves actually became captives. It made everyone so mad that they threw them in jail. And so that takes us to our final point, a jailer. In our passage, Paul and Silas are beat up and thrown in jail. You know, verse 22 says that the crowd attacked them, the magistrates tore their garments off, and orders were given to beat them with rods. And so they're in bad shape. And then in verses 23 and 24, it says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So this is where the jailer comes in. And we don't know much about the jailer. Commentators have made some educated guesses about this guy. He's possibly ex-military. It's common for those who had served in the military to retire when they're a bit older and have their pension provided through some sort of civil service job, like being a prison guard. Um, and whether that's the exact path or not, we know that he's working as a jailer, and that's a sort of blue-collar kind of job, middle class, and he would have required some level of physical strength, as you may need to physically restrain prisoners sometimes. And So this jailer was probably, you know, stereotypical tough guy. But we also know that he's cruel, he's brutal. You know, the crowd and the magistrates already beat up Paul and Silas, ripped their clothes, and uh, then they simply asked the jailer to guard them in the prison. To keep them safely is actually the precise command. But the jailer went above and beyond that. He provided no medical attention, didn't bandage up their wounds. And what's more, he put them in the inner prison. You know, that means that they were away from any light or fresh air. And he fastened their feet in stocks. And that's not like simply cuffing their ankles. Uh, Stocks are a bit like a torture instrument. You know, they turn your legs out further than they should be so that you eventually cramp up, right? And so the jailer is being unnecessarily cruel with Paul and Silas. So how does the gospel reach this blue-collar, tough guy who mistreats his prisoners? Well, to begin with, he sees the gospel's power in the lives of Paul and Silas. Verse 25 says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So despite having their clothes ripped off, being beaten, thrown in prison, left with festering wounds, put in the inner prison, locked up in stocks, Paul and Silas pray, and they sing to God, and everyone can hear, including probably the jailer. It's actually, it kind of seems like their praying and singing is what the jailer fell asleep to that night. But then something unexpected happens. Around midnight, there's an earthquake and it shakes the foundations of the prison, all the doors open, everyone's bonds are unfastened. And when the jailer realizes the prison doors were open, verse 27 says that he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And that might seem like an overreaction, but the reason that he was about to kill himself was because the punishment for allowing a prison break was your own death. And so he's figuring, I've failed. They're going to kill me anyway. I'm going to do the honorable thing and take care of it myself. But thankfully, before he went through with it, Paul stops him. Verses 28 through 30. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas then he brought them out and said "sirs what must i do to be saved" I mean what a roller coaster this jailer has been on he's just brutalized Paul and Silas and then when he was about to brutalize himself and commit suicide and then he was on the about to commit suicide but now he's on the ground before Paul and Silas asking what to do to be saved how has he gotten to this point how did he go through this roller coaster as i said Paul and Silas uh praying and singing hymns after being beaten, bruised, and locked up played a major role. And then there's the earthquake, which would make anyone ponder the power of God. And then what's more, he's just received incredible mercy from Paul and Silas. Do you see that? Do you see how? Paul and Silas could have let the jailer kill himself. All they had to do was nothing. And after all that he did to them, why shouldn't they let him kill himself, right? But no, they stop him. They save his life. And so this jailer has seen their peace and joy in the face of tremendous pain and suffering. And now he's seeing their kindness and mercy in the face of his own cruelty toward them. You know, he's spent his whole life mostly viewing the world through the lens of justice and punishment, right? He's a jailer, for goodness sake. He's a cog in the justice system machine. But then he realizes that if it's all justice all the time, if it's all punishment all the time, then even he will eventually fail and justly deserve to die. But when that moment comes, what does he get? Mercy. Not justice. Mercy. And it just breaks him he realizes that he's lost. But he also realizes that there must be hope out there somewhere. And so he falls on the ground before Paul and Silas and asks them what to do. What must I do to be saved? And what's their answer? The same answer for everyone. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Just like that. Salvation by grace through faith just believe in Jesus. And apparently he did, because he took Paul and Silas to his house, where they spoke the word of the Lord to everyone, and then the jailer finally washed Paul and Silas's wounds, and then the jailer and his family were baptized. I mean, this is a very tender scene, right? The jailer washes Paul and Silas, and then they wash the jailer. And the jailer sets food before them and they rejoice along with his entire household that he had believed in God. From a a brutal, tough guy who abused Paul and Silas to a tender, hospitable gentleman who washes wounds and feeds Paul and Silas. That's the transforming power of the gospel. So what can we take away from the jailer's story? First, how you respond to pain and suffering is a witness. That was one of the first things that the jailer saw in Paul and Silas, that they were praying and singing hymns to God while suffering tremendously. You know, Pastor Tim Keller wrote a fantastic book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering that I highly recommend to all of you. And I recommend you read it before you're going through something painful or before you're suffering if you can. But essentially what he points out is that many of the common and popular worldviews, they get something right about suffering, but not everything. And so, you know, Bo- Buddhism is right that some suffering is because we're overly attached. Islam is right is that in that there is some honor in persevering through suffering. Religions based on karma are right that some suffering is brought upon ourselves, and so on. But each of these worldviews is ultimately reductionistic, and no worldview has the holistic understanding of pain and suffering and the resources to walk through it like Christianity does. One challenge, though, lately is the rise of the primarily secular, materialist, humanist worldview, which is very influential in American society and even in our churches. Like, even though you're Christians, you're also probably pretty secular, and you just don't realize it. We can hardly help it. It's the air we breathe in our society. But one significant problem with a secular worldview is that it's terrible at dealing with pain and suffering. Because if this material world is all there is, and after you die there's nothing, and if the purpose of life is individual freedom or pleasure— then pain and suffering can only be an obstacle and interruption to that, nothing more. There can be no meaning found in it, and therefore there's no resources from the secular worldview for persevering through pain and suffering, which is why it's often so much more traumatizing for secular people. And so all that to say, as Christians preparing ourselves to respond to the inevitability of pain and suffering, uh, we should look to the hope of the gospel— and the new heavens, and the new earth, that God will wipe away all tears, and by being prepared to endure pain and suffering, well, a byproduct will be that you'll be a better witness. That's the first thing to take away. How you respond to pain and suffering as a Christian is a witness. Second, your posture of forgiveness and reconciliation is also a witness. That was probably the biggest thing that Paul and Silas showed the jailer, the mercy of God, their posture of forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is just so central to the gospel. You know, Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, knew this. The jailer, who almost took matters into his own hands, knows this. We all justly deserve death and eternal condemnation before God. We should all fall on our own swords, just like the jailer almost did. But God, in his mercy, has made a way for us to find forgiveness and reconciliation. It's such a high value of God's. Jesus talks about it all the time. If you have something against your brother, go to him and be reconciled. If you find out that your brother has something against you, go to him and be reconciled. How many times should I forgive Jesus? Seven times? No. Seventy-seven times. Infinite times he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. How can the servant who has been forgiven the equivalent of 200,000 years of labor by the king not forgive the equivalent of four months of labor by a fellow servant? Because that's us, right? How can we who have been forgiven an eternal debt not also forgive one another such smaller debts? It's so fundamental to our faith that Jesus on the cross took our sins, took our debts, and paid for them in full so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to him, and ourselves forgive and be reconciled to one another. In a culture that's growing more and more unforgiving and more and more cruel, the posture of forgiveness and reconciliation by Christians will be a witness. And so the jailer, saw Paul and Silas's hope and joy in the midst of suffering, their mercy and forgiveness in the face of his cruelty, and it brought him to Jesus. Jesus is who everyone needs. Jesus is who you need. Jesus was captivating enough for the businesswoman, powerful enough for the possessed slave girl, merciful enough for the jailer, and he's all those things for you, to Jesus is who everyone needs. Jesus is who you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your son, for Jesus. We confess, Father, that there's so many times we don't think of him as all we need. We get captivated by other things. We give more power to other things. We aren't merciful ourselves. But Father, forgive us for those things, and always point us back to Jesus, Lord. Captivate us, help us to see his power, and most of all, help us to be thankful for his mercy. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.